I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles or grab a pew Bible in front of you to Mark chapter 12. And this morning we are going to be in verses 28 to 34 of Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. I would ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's word if you're able to. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, that's Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of God. May he impress its eternal truths upon our hearts. Please be seated. TLDR. Most of you know what that means. If you don't, it stands for too long, didn't read. And it's often used at the beginning of an email or a comment to quickly summarize the main message of a longer, more detailed message to follow. TLDR has become one of the acronyms, the acronyms of this generation. This handwritten letters and novels featuring Pages, hundreds of pages of character development have given way to texts and emojis and TikTok videos. It's no wonder that TLDR has caught on. It's an appropriate and almost necessary hack in an age in which attention spans are short. We all tend to just want someone to get to the point. And I get that, you know, since we have access to so much information today, it's nice to get a simple summary of what's most relevant. I think we all want that. We want it for ourselves. We want it for others. Uh, I'm reminded of that uh, because oftentimes I'll be retelling a story that I am personally enthralled by, but it will begin to drag on with unnecessary details, and my wife will give me her TLDR look, and I'll know that it's time for me to wrap it up. Oftentimes it's helpful for everyone to just get to the main point. And we have an instance of that in our passage today from Mark. As Jesus was approached with another question, in his response, he gave the TLDR version of the Old Testament law. In a few sentences, he explained what was at the heart of God's law. And his TLDR summary is helpful not because we shouldn't or don't need to read the whole Old Testament law, 
We should, and we do need to read it, but it's valuable to know what the essence of it is. As we consider verses 28 through 34 of Mark 12, we'll look first at the initial question that was posed to Jesus. And then we'll explore in in more detail the ensuing discussion that followed. And through that discussion, we'll find Jesus' summary of the law. and He summed it up with just two commandments. But in his discussion with a scribe, we also gain important insight into what it takes to enter God's kingdom. And so today we'll consider two great commandments and one crucial realization that all citizens of God's kingdom must embrace. Two, two commandments and one critical realization. But before we get there, let's look at the question that this scribe posed. And we find the initial question in verse 28. The initial question. Mark writes there, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. This scribe had just heard Jesus discussing the issue of the resurrection with the Sadducees, and being an expert in the Jewish law, he was impressed. The the scribes were well-versed in the Old Testament. They interpreted and taught the Old Testament law to the people. They were respected lawyers. They knew the Torah. And Jesus' answer to the Sadducees in the previous passage in Mark, from the Torah, was deemed legit by this scribe. He saw that Jesus had answered the Sadducees well. So this scribe posed a question of his own to Jesus. The parallel account in Matthew chapter 22 reveals to us that this scribe was a Pharisee. And Matthew tells us in verse 34 of that chapter in his gospel that when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, this scribe, asked him a question to test him. Now, based on the rest of the account that we have in Mark, it's not clear that the scribe or lawyer was trying to trap Jesus or trying to embarrass him in the same way that the other Pharisees and Herodians or the Sadducees had tried to do. It's not clear his main motive here was to discredit Jesus. It it seems more likely that this scribe, this educated and respected lawyer, wanted himself to test Jesus' skill in the law. And perhaps he was encouraged by his Pharisee friends because just maybe they might have thought Jesus wouldn't be up to that test. I don't think we have to assume that this particular scribe was trying to attempt Jesus to fail, but rather that the tenor of this text seems to indicate that he was genuinely curious whether Jesus really was as wise and and understanding as he had appeared to be as he was fielding questions in the temple that day. And the scribe wanted to see if Jesus would have a fitting answer to a fundamental question that had been debated before. He asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Out of all the commandments in the law, which is the first and foremost in priority? The scribe was asking Jesus to lay out the chief duty of man. And it appears to have been a relatively common topic of discussion for the Jews. 
with 613 recognized commands in the Old Testament, it was natural for the Jewish people to try to categorize and prioritize certain commands. We see glimpses of this in the Old Testament. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, we read, He has told you, old man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Habakkuk also writes in chapter 2, verse 4 of his book, that the righteous shall live by his faith. The famous rabbi Hillel, who taught not too long before Jesus' time, was asked a similar question. He summed up the law this way. He said, what you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the entire Torah. Everything else is interpretation. And Jesus himself referred to the weightier matters of the law in his own teaching. So this question about which commandment being the most important was posed as a test to see if Jesus could come up with an appropriate answer. Is the most important command walking humbly with God? Is it living by faith? Is it not doing things to your neighbor that you don't want done to you? Or is it perhaps something else? What is the most important commandment? That's the initial question. In the ensuing discussion, Jesus answered this question by referring to two commandments. But his conversation with the scribe also brought to the surface one critical realization into what it takes to be obedient to God and to enter his kingdom. And so we move from the initial question to the ensuing discussion. The first commandment that Jesus discussed is found in verses 29 and 30. And it's simple. Jesus answered that the most important commandment is to love God comprehensively. To love God comprehensively. In verse 29, we find Jesus quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. He quoted the most famous of Old Testament passages to the Jews. It's their version of John 3.16. It's what devout Jews would recite in the morning, in the evening. It's the passage they would put in tiny boxes and wear on their wrists or on their foreheads. It's the passage that they would have had someone custom print on Etsy for their home. It was what they would hear at the beginning of their synagogue services. Jesus went to a familiar text. It's often called the Shema because it starts with a word in Hebrew that means to hear. Jesus said that the most important commandment is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So Jesus said that the most important commandment is to love God comprehensively. Now that wasn't a controversial answer at all. But I want you to notice a a few things about his answer. First, Jesus rooted our duty to love God in the person of God himself. He didn't just start with Deuteronomy 6, 5, and and you shall love the Lord your God. Jesus started at the beginning of the Shema in verse 4, with hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That phrase speaks of God's uniqueness. He is the Lord. In Deuteronomy, the word Lord is in all caps in the ESV. He is Yahweh. He is the God of the Jewish people. There's a covenantal bond between them. God has promised to demonstrate his steadfast love toward his people. He is the Lord, our God. 
And he is the one God. He is not one among many. He is the only one worthy of our ultimate love. It is this God that we are commanded to love, not a fickle, incapable, capricious, or arbitrary God, not one of many gods. The most important commandment in the world is that we love the one true and faithful God who promises to love his people to the end. This is the God we are commanded to love. And notice in verse 30 that we are called to love him comprehensively. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. In Deuteronomy, there are actually only three modifiers mentioned. The mind is missing back there in the Torah. But in the Gospels, when Jesus quoted this passage, he sometimes used four. In Luke chapter 10, verse 27, he used the same terms as used here in Mark, but switched up the order of the last two. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, however, Jesus is quoted as having only used three, with mind instead of the original strength. What's important here is not the, the little discrepancies. It's you know, possible that Jesus simply wanted to expand upon the Hebrew concepts in Deuteronomy with an additional Greek word that was sometimes caught in the Gospels and sometimes not. But what's most important is the idea being communicated. These individual modifiers are significant in that they help us to more concretely understand what it means to love God. We're to love Him with all our hearts, the seed of our emotions, our, our passions, if you will. We're, we're to love Him with all our soul and our spirit. We're to love Him with all our mind, all our intelligence. And we're to love Him with all our strength, all our energy, all our will. Now, the point is that our love for God is meant to consume the entirety of our being. We are to love Him comprehensively. We're to feel love for Him as we reflect upon His grace in our life. We're to experience love for Him as we go to Him in prayer and our, and our souls are united to Him. We're, we're to have a rational and well-founded love for Him as we push our minds to grapple with the great wisdom in His revealed Word. And we're to exert ourselves in love for him as we praise him and as we serve him. This kind of love that we're commanded to offer to God is not a fractional love. It's not a partial love. It's not a divided love. He requires all of us. We cannot love God the way he has commanded to us to love him if we idolize other things or other people. God requires all of our devotion for all of our lives because he is the one and only God. Is God the consuming passion of your life? Does your love for him color everything else that you do? Do you have a deep affection for him? Are you faithful to him? Are you tempted to go after other loves? Do you reject things or people that don't honor him? Do you, you talk about him with others? Do you tell them that you love him? Do you want to give him gifts and make him happy and bring him pleasure through the things that you do? These are things that, that we should and must do if we want to love God comprehensively. And if we don't do these things because we want to get God, and, well, and I should say sorry, we, we don't do these things because we want to get God to love us. We do these things because he is the one and only God who loves us. It is because the one God is the Lord our God. 
He loves his people entirely and commands us to love him the same way in return. And that is the greatest commandment. Love God comprehensively. But Jesus didn't stop there. He quoted from Leviticus 19.18 when he said in verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, first we're to love God comprehensively, but second we're to love others sacrificially. Love others sacrificially. Now notice the word neighbor. To the, to the regular Jew, neighbor meant Jewish neighbor. If you go to Luke chapter 10, you'll find another occasion in which Jesus was questioned by a lawyer, and that lawyer asked him what he should do to inherit eternal life. But Jesus turned the question back to him and asked him to summarize the law, and the lawyer quoted the same passages Jesus quoted here in Mark, to which Jesus responded, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? If you know your Bible, you'll remember that Jesus then told the parable of the good Samaritan, revealing that our neighbor is not just the person we would be naturally inclined to love, that we are called to love all those God brings into our lives, no matter what they look like and where they grew up, or what they do vocationally, or how needy they are. And we are to called to love these people as we love ourselves. It's, it's just assumed in God's law, law that we all love ourselves. Even those with low self-esteem love themselves. They, just like those with a healthy view of themselves, have a natural tendency to focus on their own needs out of self-love. And, and so to love others like we love ourselves means paying attention to their needs and desires just like we naturally pay attention to our needs and desires. In other words, we need to be oriented toward others. Because if we love God, we will love those who have been created in his image. And we will fight to love them even when the effects of this fallen world have marred the image of God in them and made it difficult for us to love them. We'll fight to love people with different views during this pandemic. When we don't agree with their rationale or their decision-making, we'll fight to put ourselves in their shoes and think about how must they must feel about our rationale and our decision-making. And we'll think about how we would want to be treated if we were them. We'll love across stages of life. As married couples and families, we'll love those who are single by inviting them into our lives and caring for them and providing a, a place of refuge for them, a place of community for them. As, as singles, we'll joyfully volunteer to help busy families running an errand for them or babysitting for them. We'll, we'll love those who are older by listening to them, respecting them. We'll love those who are younger by being patient with them, learning from them as well. We'll love by, by bearing with others at work. We'll stand up for others who can't stand up for themselves. We'll love by speaking the truth to one another in love. And we'll do that by respecting each other and being patient with each other. Trusting in the Lord to do His work of sanctification. We'll love by doing something tangible to care for the needy. We'll donate some time. We'll We'll buy a meal, we'll pray, we'll start a conversation, we'll cultivate a relationship, and we'll love by not taking advantage of others. Now, there are so many different ways that we can love others. Others have pointed out how this command to love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus 19 comes at the end of a section 
in verses 10 through 18 of that chapter that is full of specific examples of how to love your neighbor. I won't have you turn there, but uh, loving your neighbor according to Leviticus 19 meant caring for the poor, not stealing from others, not deceiving or lying to others, being fair in business, caring for the disabled, dealing justly with people, not slandering others, not storing up hatred in your heart toward others, not taking revenge or bearing a grudge against others. And I think you get the point. This is the kind of varied, others-focused love that God's people were always meant to demonstrate in this world. Have we succeeded at times? Yes. Have we failed more than we like to admit? Yes. As a church, we still need to grow in loving others sacrificially, both within our church and outside of our church. And if we don't, then we show that we really don't love God because we don't love the people that he has made in his image. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, it states, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Love for God and love for others go together. And that is why Jesus responded to the scribe with two commandments, not just one. And Jesus answered his question, the scribe's question, about what was the most important commandment in verses 29 and 30. It's to love God comprehensively. But, but Jesus' answer wouldn't truly capture the heart of the law and all the other commandments of God if he didn't also mention the need to love others sacrificially. It is these two commandments that summarize the The Ten Commandments, the first four relating to our love for God, and the second six relating to our love for others. And and by extension, these two commandments summarize the entire law. Jesus said at the end of verse 31, there is no other commandment greater than these. And Matthew writes in his gospel that Jesus said after this, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Both are important. Are love for God finds expression in the way that we love our neighbor. If, if love for God alone was sufficient, our faith would devolve into some kind of disembodied mysticism, lacking connection to reality. Love for God would just be this theological abstraction. And if love for others by itself was enough, as so many today seem to believe, then then we're stuck with a a humanism that will ultimately disappoint. Because that horizontal love that that so many in society try hard with good intentions to demonstrate cannot defeat the self-love we all inherently possess, which has led us to sin and will lead us to our collective demise. The law of God calls us to, to love both God and others. You can't have one without the other. And that's why Jesus' answer was so revealing. On their own, these were not difficult concepts to understand. And to us today who are familiar with this passage, it doesn't seem that that complicated. But it's it's, it's just something that that you should naturally be able to figure out, it seems like. You don't need some machine learning algorithm to uncover it. But by emphasizing both love for God and love for man as the as the summation of all of God's commands, Jesus clarified something that was missing in the Jewish understanding of the day. The religion of the Jews had become bloated because they were, they were trying so hard 
to keep every single individual command that they had lost sight of the most important ones. Now, this scribe got the answer that he needed. What is the most important commandment? It's to love God comprehensively. But you can't separate the greatest of commandments from the other great commandment that accompanies it. You also must love others sacrificially. And we find the scribe's response in verse 32. He was pleased with Jesus' answer. He said to him, you're right, teacher. And then he proceeded to affirm what Jesus said. He affirmed what Jesus said in the Shema. He even added an extra phrase from Deuteronomy 4.32. He said, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. The scribe also affirmed Jesus' answer about loving God with all your being and loving one's neighbor as yourself as the preeminent commands in the law. In, in verse 33, you might notice that he substituted understanding for soul and mind, which, which again just shows us that it's not so much the individual components that are most important, but rather the idea that we are to love God comprehensively from every aspect of our being. But what I want you to look at in your Bibles is the last phrase at the end of verse 33. Okay, the scribe said that loving God and loving others, at the end of verse 33, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So uh, a whole burnt offering was when an entire animal offering was consumed by the fire of the altar. It was indicative of something that was being completely sacrificed as opposed to the more generic sacrifices, which were only partly burnt up so the rest could be eaten by the, the, the priests or the Levites. The idea is that even the most sacred of religious rituals and duties is not more important than the heart of love that lies behind all the commandments. Heartfelt obedience is greater than ritualistic observance. The essence of our duty as believers is love toward God and man and not just ceremony. And this was a a bold thing for a scribe and, and Pharisee who had been trained to interpret and obey every ritual in the law to declare. As a student of the law, this scribe recognized the wisdom behind Jesus' response. And he went even further by stating that the whole ceremonial system in the temple and in Judaism wasn't as important as loving God and loving your neighbor. That's why Jesus commended him. In verse 34, when he saw that he had answered wisely, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. The the scribe was near the kingdom. He was close. He understood the heartbeat behind the law. He understood that the loving God was supreme, but that loving others was also necessary. And he understood that the ceremonial system wasn't the most important thing. He, He was near the kingdom because he was humble and courageous enough to acknowledge the truth. He didn't just take the side of the the, the other Pharisees and and scribes who had already made up their mind about Jesus. He had an open mind. He was willing to bend and and to change when confronted with wisdom and authority better than what he had known. And he openly praised Jesus. There, there, There is always hope for people like that. This scribe shows us that not all the Pharisees were bad and inflexible. Acts 15 verse 5 confirms this. It tells us there that Some believers in the early church were Pharisees. Perhaps this man was one of them. But we don't know for sure. Because here Jesus said that he was just near. 
He wasn't yet in. Why not? Didn't he say the right things? Didn't he have a right understanding of God's law? Yes. But the question that remained for him was whether he would come to accept Jesus in humility. That's the crucial realization that this discussion ended with. To to be part of God's kingdom, you must understand the commands to love God comprehensively and to to love others sacrificially. But here in verses 34 or 32 to 34, we see that you must also accept Christ humbly. That's crucial realization. You must acknowledge, you must accept Jesus humbly. You must come to the realization that though you are commanded by God to love him with all your being and to love your neighbor as yourself, you just can't do it. None of us has done that successfully. We can't even do it for a few minutes at a time. We just can't. We, we love ourselves too much. And no sacrifice that we try to offer can atone for the debt that we owe to God for failing to keep his good commandments. But in Jesus, we have God's Son, who is the only one capable of loving God his Father and loving others to perfection. If you think about his life, it was all about loving and obeying his Father and loving others around him. His whole ministry was conducted in obedience to these two great commandments. And, and that's why when, when, he, when Jesus sacrificed his, his own life, all of it on the cross for us, out of love for God and, and out of love for us, he paid the debt that we were not able to pay to God for the forgiveness of our sins. This Jesus is the one everyone must accept if they are to, to enter the kingdom and, and not just remain near. To be citizens of God's kingdom, you must acknowledge how you haven't obeyed the great commandments of God and you must repent of your sin, trusting in Jesus. And he is worthy of your trust. He has shown us in the past few weeks in Mark that he has the right answer to every question. His wisdom is unsurpassed. And, and that's why Mark writes at the end of verse 34, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. In fact, after this, Jesus started to ask some questions of his own. And we'll consider those when we pick up our study of Mark again in the, in the new year. There are two great commandments and one crucial realization that all kingdom citizens must embrace. You must love God comprehensively, love others sacrificially, and accept Christ humbly. And many of you have heard the name John Wesley. He's best known as the father of Methodism. His influence in England and beyond shouldn't be underestimated. He was a key figure during the revival of the church in England in the 1700s. And growing up, he had all the pedigree you would want to become a successful Christian leader. He was born to a good family. He went to Oxford. He became a professor of Greek and logic. He was ordained as a priest in the Church of England in his 20s. He was part of one of the greatest Bible study groups in the history of Western Christianity called the the Holy Club at Oxford. He got to know George Whitfield there. Wesley took religion seriously. He prayed daily. He was vigilant about fighting sin he fasted, he visited those in need. He, he was even sent out as a missionary in his 30s to Georgia to try to convert Native Americans there. 
But that trip humbled him. It revealed many of his failures. He got into conflict with other missionaries. He, he almost died. And he wrote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? He realized that he wasn't the Christian he thought he was. He was near, but he was actually unconverted. But on the morning of May 24th, 1738, back in London, he tells us in his journal that he read the words from Mark chapter 12, verse 34, that we all just read today. Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And then he writes in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldergate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans about a quarter before nine while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ Christ alone for salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley wasn't far from God's kingdom for a large part of his life, but he wasn't in either, even though he had tried hard to love God and to love others. What he needed was God to work in his heart and Cause him to accept Christ alone in humility for his salvation. Some of you today are near, but you're not in. You haven't trusted in Christ alone for salvation. You you can try to love God. You can love others with all your might, but you still won't be in his kingdom if you first don't learn to love and trust his son. Trust him to take away your sins and And to save you from the condemnation that we faced as those who have not kept God's law. So that you might not just be close, but you might be allowed into God's kingdom. I've got a little TLDR myself for this passage. Use it if you think it's helpful, forget it if not. But these verses teach us that we're to have two loves, TL. Love for God and love for others. But there's also something we must first do, D, if we're to enter God's kingdom. We must receive Christ Jesus in humility. Okay, so a TR, TLDR for the kingdom. Two loves, but first do receive Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful always for your word. Even in familiar passages like these, we we are instructed again of, as to how we should live. You humble us because you remind us of, of how far we, we, we fall short from obeying your commandments. Oh, Father, we need to grow so much as individuals and as our church and our love for you and our love for others. We, we fail in so many different ways, but we are so grateful that you have given us a Savior who did it all perfectly and who stands in our place before you and offers us entrance into your kingdom so that we can, can love you and love others freely to the best of our ability according to the, the power that your spirit gives us. 
as we're transformed by your word. So help us to do that. And if there is anyone here that does not know you, that is, that is close to your kingdom, Father, help them to enter in today. Do that by your spirit. Work true salvation in their hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.